Acts chapter 2 is, is uh, kind of like the Atchafalaya Basin. If you know anything about the Atchafalaya Basin, it drains over, I think, two-thirds of the United States. Acts chapter 2 is that for the Bible. Almost all of the Bible flows in. And I, I'm only going to be able to take one slice of it. I mean, just an example of something I can't even deal with that is enormous. And I, I wish I was preaching on it as I look at our church and what God is doing. But in the Bible, there's something called the Tower of Babel where everybody speaks the same language. And because of a great sin in their heart, God splits them up until they have different languages. And language becomes their barrier. Acts 2 is the reversal of Babel. They all have different languages, but through a miracle of language, God brings them back together. And God is saying that I've healed the brokenness of Babel. And it it has huge implications for churches. What this means about diversity, about how we see other cultures, and about how we strive against the brokenness that we brought to this world. That God is saying with with a profound authority, that's over. And you need to reflect it as a church. I wish that we could, one day I'll teach on that. But this morning, because today is Pentecost Sunday, today is a Sunday that we remember and celebrate the birth of the church. I want us to, to um, look at Pentecost from a different angle. Last year on my birthday, my mother sent this email to me that I'd like to read to you. Happy birthday, Aubrey. As I was sitting here at 425 a.m., my birthday is uh, April the 25th, 425 And she was awake at 425. She's emailing me. I happen to recall the day of your birth. It went something like this. I had a morning doctor's appointment around 10. Alice kept D and Monica went to kindergarten. The doctor told me the usual. You won't have this baby this week. Tell your husband to buy you some chocolate Easter candy. I had only gained 11 pounds and he thought I should gain a little more. Sure enough, as with Monica and D, the doctor was wrong. Shortly after getting home, I started having those unmistakable birthing pains. I called Wayne and the doctor. I took a shower, washed my hair, and we headed for the... That's my mom, right, Janelle? And we headed... She's in labor. She gets a shower and washes her. And we headed for Baptist Hospital. The doctor, whom I have never seen, although he was in my doctor's group, admitted me. He told your dad that it wouldn't be any time soon and to go on home and to do what he needed to do. The doctor went back across the street to his office, and before he could get back to the hospital, you began your entry into the world. You were partially born in the hall, while the nurses were frantically sailing us to the delivery room. There was a lot of commotion and hurry when we did get to delivery. The rest is history. After the fact, one of the nurses said, did anyone notice what time he was born? And I said, it was 425. The clock was right in my view. As with D, your dad was somewhere between our house and the hospital, probably on the Mississippi River Bridge. I think I still haven't forgiven him for the first time, much less the second time he missed a birth. Although, now I can at least laugh a little. Anyway, have a wonderful day. It can never be as exciting as April 25th, 1973. Love you very much, Mom. Now, the reason I read this to you is that today is Pentecost. It's the day that we celebrate what really did happen 2,000 years ago. And when you read Acts chapter 2, it's like reading the email from my mom. To you outsiders, there were a hundred details you missed. There were moments where if Janelle and I were at the house reading this together, we would be howling with laughter that you didn't even know were jokes. 
right? And isn't this the way family systems work, right? If, if we came to the Hanson house, Zoe could say something to Scott that none of us understood why it ticked him off so bad, right? I mean, there, or the opposite, why um, it made him laugh, right? I mean, s- families have deep baggage, good and bad. Acts chapter 2 has a backstory that if you don't know that backstory, you miss what is really being said there. And so for us to wrap our minds around and to understand what Luke, who wrote Acts chapter 2, for us to understand, look, I was born on April 25th, 1973. There's a a medical way of reporting that, but then there's a way of telling the history that tells a story, right, that fills the events with meaning. My mother's email filled those events with a meaning that unless you're a part of the family, you don't get Unless you're a part of the family, unless you know the backstory to Acts chapter 2, you don't understand what's going on. In order for us to really know what Luke is trying to communicate, because he's not giving a bare account. There really is no bare account of history. He's giving an interpretive account of history. In order for us to get that, we have to know the backstory. And critical to the backstory is one particular book in the Bible, the book of Exodus. So to come to grips with Acts 2, we're going to take a flying tour of the book of Exodus. Now, Exodus records some events that occurred about 1,500 years before Acts chapter 2. One day, there's this cat named Moses, right? And he's a shepherd, and he's out in the wilderness, and he's around the base of a particular mountain, Mount Sinai. And he comes upon this bush... That is what? Anybody know? On fire. That's critical to Acts chapter 2. He comes upon a bush that's on fire. It's, It's burning, but the fire is not destroying the bush. And in fact, we learn very quickly when we're reading the story that the fire is a is an occasion, an instance, a moment of God's presence uniquely concentrated on earth. And it is in the form of fire. Now last week, I talked about heaven and earth as being overlapping, interlocking dimensions of the same reality. That heaven is not out there past Pluto. And if you think of it that way, then like Russia, when it launched a a, a rocket into orbit, it will say we've been there and God is not there. Right? Heaven is an overlapping interlocking dimension of this reality. And the burning bush in Exodus is one moment where God unzips the veil separating these two dimensions, where he thins out the veil separating them. And Moses, with his feet firmly planted on earth, encounters heaven, the domain where God is visibly present. He encounters the physical presence of God in the form of fire. So God tells Moses to go get the Jews, go get the people of Israel who are at this moment slaves in, does anybody know this part of the story? Egypt. And he he tells them to bring them to that mountain so that they can worship God. So Moses rescues Israel after a long, very dramatic series of events. He brings them out of Egypt and he brings them to that mountain. Now when they arrive on that mountain, God again unzips the veil. He thins the membrane separating heaven and earth. And he shows up and it freaks Israel out. They get scared. And he shows up in the form of a really thick cloud with lightning and fire and thunder. 
And he calls Moses to enter into this chaos at the top of the mountain, this cloud and this lightning. And Moses ascends into that area. And God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And he gives Moses specific instructions for building a tent, a very special tent, a tent that will become what they call the tabernacle. And it's enormous. And just like with the burning bush and the cloud that covers the mountain, the God who fills the heavens and the earth will concentrate his presence in that tent. Like he did in the burning bush, like he did at the top of the mountain. God tells Moses, build this tent because that's where I'm going to meet with you in unique ways. This will be the location of my concentrated presence as the people of Israel journey through the land until they get to the promised land. Now, before they build the temple, there's a catastrophe. Instead, they build something else. A golden calf, an idol, a baby calf. They get all of their jewelry together. And just like we, so many of us have contributed to this worship service this morning, from the musicians to the scripture readers, all of them contributed... And they made this idol. And they worshiped this golden calf in a drunken orgy. And they betray God. And they they turn in this uncontrollable God. This untouchable God. They trade him in for this thing they can see and feel and taste and touch that won't hurt them. And in response, God tells Moses, my presence will not go with you. The rules have changed. My, this is an important phrase in the Bible. My presence will... Now, God is everywhere, right? He's not saying I'm going to become no longer omnipresent and I'm going to take myself... He's saying in, in a unique, this unique way that I was giving myself to you from the burning bush to the top of the mountain and I was going to be a part of this tabernacle thing, my presence is going to go with you no longer. You've betrayed me. But Moses intercedes for Israel. He prays like he believes prayer actually works, which is the only thing you can believe if you want to really pray. And he begs God. This is Exodus chapter 33, verse 15. Listen to what Moses says. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? Think about that. That's what makes us different from everybody else. It's not that we're better than other people, right? It's not that we're prettier than other other people. It's your presence. Is that not the way that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Now, God listened to Moses' prayer. And it's an amazing thing. There's a passage in the Bible that says that, that God changed his mind. He swayed and he acted according to Moses' request. And the people of Israel repent of their sin of building the golden calf. And they build the tabernacle. And the book of Exodus concludes with God's glory, God's unique presence descending on the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 40 verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. See, this is the same thing, right? It was on top of the mountain. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it 
And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now skip down to verse 38. Exodus 40 verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. And get this. And fire was in it by night. And in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journey. So Israel sets out on a very roundabout way to get to this land, the promised land. Now fast forward the story about 500 years. They're in the promised land. And God has given them permission to move out of that tent kind of nomadic existence and to build a physical temple. And guess what? When they pray and dedicate the temple, guess what God does? His glory fills the temple. It descends on this temple. Listen to this description from 1 Kings chapter 8. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister, couldn't stand up to minister, because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, from here on out in the Old Testament, for the history of Israel, the temple is regularly described as the place God has chosen to dwell. Now, of course, the Jews fully understood that the God who created everything could not be contained by this building. But because God chose to concentrate His presence there, The tabernacle and then the temple. And this is critical for understanding Acts 2. The tabernacle and then the temple become the primary symbols of God's presence among his people. Then disaster strikes again. The people of Israel betray God again. And again. And again. And again. And their old habit of idol worship keeps coming back. So about 400 years of that, God says, enough's enough. And he allows Jerusalem, which is the site where the temple is, to fall to her enemies. And the temple is raised, destroyed, flattened. And there's a passage in the Bible that is one of the most painful and emotionally devastating descriptions I've ever read anywhere in literature. One of Israel's prophets is given a vision of the glory of God in the form of smoke, wind, and fire going out of the temple, out of the land of Israel, and leaving. Israel lost the presence of God. As Moses said, we've lost our identity. How else are we distinct? From that point forward, for the next several hundred years, part of God's primary message through His prophets to the people of Israel was that one day, my presence will return. One day. Ezekiel 37 verse 27 is an example. My dwelling place shall be with you again, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. One of the most important examples of this promise is in Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord 
shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. Now look, the story that I've just gone through from Exodus Isaiah, Ezekiel, all those things. The people reading Luke's account of the day of Pentecost would have known that better than you know your family's history. They would have known that in ways that oral cultures have tremendous encyclopedic, vast stories memorized. They would have known all of that. So when they heard Acts chapter 2, they would have known that Luke is talking about all of that when he starts bringing up these events. Now think about this because this is absolutely critical for our understanding of what's going on in Acts chapter 2. If you don't get this backstory, you will end up fighting about who can and can't speak in tongues. And you'll totally miss what's going on here. You'll you'll misunderstand not only what's going on in Acts 2, but what Acts 2 has to say about the purpose of the church. Many, many first century Jews, Jews living at the time that Acts chapter 2 occurred and that Luke wrote his description of it, many of them, they were worshiping in the temple that had been rebuilt after it had been destroyed, I referenced. But all over the Jewish literature of that period, the Jews were lamenting the fact that God had not returned to His temple. They knew it. They were still waiting on God's return. They had rebuilt the temple, they had rebuilt His house, and He hadn't come home. And all over the Jewish literature of that period is pain, waiting, and longing. The temple, I mean, you've got to know this. The temple of God in Jerusalem for the first century Jews was a place where they remember Famous examples of God's presence being concentrated. Where God was immediately and vividly present. In other words, the temple at that time was a place of memory and imagination. But it was not a place of the present, vivid, immediate reality of God. And that was something the Jewish people... And what does that mean? It means there are people without identity according to their history. You, you can't know the pain that they were going through. Now with that in mind, Luke tells us this story in Acts chapter 2 where we see wind from heaven filling this house and tongues of fire. And can you see how he's awakening all of those old stories? Can you see how he's telling the history of what happened on this day 2,000 years ago with, with a story in mind? You see, Luke is saying this. The glory of the Lord today returned to His people. That long promise was really answered, finally answered today. The, this pillar of cloud and, this, and the fire has come once again to lead God's people out of the wilderness. Luke is saying... What is happening now is the restoration that the Jews have been hoping for for hundreds of years. Now, in this context, we can understand 
what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is this. It is the personal presence of God returning to His people. That's what the Holy Spirit is. The personal presence of God. It's the reversal of Ezekiel's vision where the Lord left. The Lord has come back. Now, remember that passage from Isaiah that I read to you. The promise that on the day when the presence of God returns to his temple, nations will flock to Jerusalem, to Zion, to hear the word of the Lord. When God's temple is once again filled with his personal presence, then God's power and God's grace will reach out and summon people from every culture. It will, it will no longer be trapped in the Jewish ethnic identity. But when God returns, he's going to do a new thing. He's going to draw people in from many cultures, from every nation. This is why when Mike was reading us, he had to pronounce all those weird countries. Why did Luke list all of the countries that were there that day? Because Luke saw what happened and he saw it was the answer to all of those long promises. Acts chapter 2 verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. And the list goes on. So look, Luke is not just describing what happened at Pentecost. Luke is interpreting it. And he's teaching us that the world has turned a corner. In God's plan of history, something has happened. But it was unexpected, wasn't it? Because it didn't... It's not like God left the temple and then just came right back in just the same way. It's different this time. This time, God's dwelling is radically new. It's not in a building isolated in one piece of real estate in the Middle East. No longer when we talk about God's temple are we talking about a single building in Jerusalem. Look, the temple in Jerusalem all along was a sign, a signpost. It was a finger pointing into a fog. It was was just helping the people to see a taste of what will be. It was a signpost to something greater. To God's intention all along to live in the hearts of living human beings. You see, all along, God's intention was to overflow the culture of Israel. Was to overflow the banks of Palestine. God's intention all along was to flow out into all cultures and all peoples. To bless all nations. In other words, the Holy Spirit... Is the personal presence of God returned to God's people, not for their own sake, but for the sake of the world. That's what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. It's God's personal presence no longer returning just to one particular nation, but it's returning to his people for the sake of the world. In Acts chapter 2, the moment that God's spirit fills that room, what do those people do? It's like 
the opening of the Kentucky Derby. They run out of that room. They run down into the streets where all of these other nations and cultures are. And they just start telling this incredible story. It's almost like when the Holy Spirit comes in that room, he blows them out of their ethnocentrism. He blows them out of their cultural arrogance. He blows them out of that room right into the streets. And immediately from then on out, you can no longer talk about God's relationship only with one nation. Now you've got to wrap it up in a bunch of words you can't pronounce. Because it's from different cultures and different peoples. And we find them immediately in the street declaring to residents of Mesopotamia and Egypt and all these other places. What are they declaring? They are declaring this. The God that we as a nation have had a relationship with that's unique for thousands of years. That God is the only God. He is the one true Lord and he is not just for us. He is for you. He is the universal Lord of all nations and all cultures. That's our passage in John chapter 15 that I read, verse 26. When the the helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit. Notice, he's a helper. He's going to help you do something. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. Now that's exact. Jesus said that's going to happen. And then in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes, guess what they do? They run into the street and they bear witness. They affirm that this one God is the only true God. Now what I'm trying to say, look, that's the birth of the church. Acts 2 is the story. It's Luke's email to you, like my mom's email to me, right? Acts 2 is Luke emailing you the account of your birth, the account of the church's birth. And he's telling a message. And what is he saying? He's saying the church was born with a mission to the world. That's our birthright. That's the dynamics of our birth, right? Immediately upon our birth, it's the Holy Spirit, the personal presence of God, filling our hearts for the purpose of the world. For the sake of a mission to the world. It's interesting to take the book of Acts and to plot it on a map. The first page is in the city of Jerusalem. The last page of the book of Acts, do you know where it is? Anybody? Rome. And the book of Acts is the story of the geographic spread and the cultural spread of Christianity from being this thing isolated to a group of schismatic Jews in some backwoods swamp of Israel, to the center of the Roman Empire. That's what Luke is doing in his book. He's telling how not only was this promised, but it happened within a few decades. The whole book is about... There's this famous statement at the beginning of Acts, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And by the end of the book of Acts, they are at the ends of the earth. They're at the center of the Roman Empire, which in their mindset is, is the entire known world. And guess what? Since the day when the book of Acts ends, Christianity has continued to spread. Did you know that according to the best evidence we have at our hands today, there are two billion Christians in the world right now. That's one-third of the planet's population. And Christianity is growing at a staggering rate. Christianity is growing faster than any other religion. In Africa alone, get this, in the year 1900, there were only 10 million Christians. 
Africa, 1,900, 10 million Christians. By the year 2000, 100 years later, 360 million Christians in Africa. From 10% of the population in 100 years to 46%. This represents the single largest quantitative religious change in world history. And it's happened in our lifetime. We live in the West where Christianity is stagnant. And we, like good Americans, extrapolate from our little bitty fishpole and assume that's what the whole world looks like. We assume that the state of things for Christianity here is indicative of Christianity around the world. And for all sorts of reasons, the churches in the global South are almost invisible to us. And it's a shame. Because when you look at Christianity on a worldwide level, it is astonishing what is happening. It's, it's unbelievable. This little bitty group within first century Judaism exploded onto the streets of Jerusalem. And 2,000 years later, one out of three people on the planet claim Christianity. Pentecost. It is the return of God's spirit, God's empowering presence to his people so that his people will take this radical message that will get us persecuted, whether it's psychologically, emotionally, or physically, this radical message that only Jesus is God and all the other gods are imposter gods. They are deceiver gods. They are non-gods. Pentecost, the creation of a church, a people, as the vehicle of God's mission to the world. And this is the story that the church of the incarnation is plunged into. We're stepping into a river. Christianity didn't start with us. And our little corner of the river isn't even close to a a significant percentage of it. God is birthing a church here in Harrisonburg. That's what God's spirit does. I love that psalm Jacob led us in. When God's spirit comes to the face of the earth, it renews the face of the earth. So what is God birthing our church for? Renewal, transformation. That's what God's spirit does. Creating a church here in Harrisonburg to renew the face of this valley, to join with all of the other Christian churches here, to be partners with them in this work that God... And and why? For the sake of... Of the world. We, the church of the incarnation, are being birthed to participate with God in His mission. And what is His mission? It's the renewal of the whole world humans, nature, creation, culture. That the entire world will be reconciled to God through the cross. And how do we do this? How are we going to participate with God in this? By the power of the Holy Spirit. By God's empowering presence. We share with other people that Jesus really is God. He really is the true Lord. The Holy One of Israel. Jesus Christ. Living. Crucified. Dead. Buried. Risen. Ascended. And returning. That is our message. So look. The message of our church is that. And think about how this calls us away from all of our selfishness. How it it tells us the wrong question is not where does God fit in my life? That's the wrong question. Don't ask where does God fit in my life? 
The real question is, where does my life fit into God's mission that he's been up to and he's going on with? Where does my life fit into this great story of God's mission to make all things new? This mission that God is on to make all things new. This is where you need to start for evaluating anything in your life. What does my job have to do with God's mission to make all things new? That's what you need to ask. What is me going to school, getting a degree? What does this have to do with God's mission to make all things new? What does my family life have to do with God's mission to make all things new? What does business have to do with God's mission? What does farming have to do with God's mission? What do my resources have to do with God's mission? And on and on and on. And as our church follows God on this mission to reconcile the whole universe to himself, as we take that seriously, there will be joy and there will be suffering. In the passage out of John's gospel, Jesus makes it clear. You're going to be thrown in jail. Many will accept the good news and many will mock and reject you and harm you. And look, for some of you to take this mission seriously, the rejection and the harm is going to come from your family. From your close friends. Some will accuse us of being drunk, confused. Fundamentalist, arrogant, unsophisticated. But in the midst of it all, when we join God in His mission, we will experience God's Spirit. The personal, powerful experience of God's presence will transform us individually, it will transform our families, it will transform our church as we surrender up our own agendas and we join God on His mission, we will discover the strange presence of a living God. And He will guide us and He will teach us and He will empower us to live radical lives in our streets, in our homes, in our neighborhoods and to the ends of the earth. That's the story of our birth. Let's pray.